No, I, I just did something that I was told not to do when I was just a boy. And I was told not to do this by someone I, I, I greatly admired. It was uh, someone who was a few years older than me, but someone who I knew really knew God. And they said to me, Daniel, I never, ever pray for humility. Because if you ask God for humility, uh, he delights to answer that and you won't like his answer. And they weren't joking either. They were sincere. Don't pray for that. And I think a lot of us would not ever tell us or tell someone else not to pray for something. But I think a lot of us actually walk around with, with uh, that unspoken suspicion that if we actually ask God for humility, we're not going to like the answer. Uh, because a lot of us are, are afraid of what that would actually look like if we truly uh, were to become a humble people. Uh, we're spending the summer at Church of Messiah going through the book of Proverbs, looking at the various themes that Proverbs speak to. Uh, Proverbs, as you know, is a, is a book that was uh, written with all these um, incredible pearls of wisdom from God. And, um, and so rather than what we normally do at Church of Messiah, going through a, a passage of Scripture and unpacking it, we're, we're kind of putting a thread through these various uh, pearls of wisdom from the book of Proverbs uh, around different themes. And so this summer we've looked at um, the, the need to fear God and what that really looks like from the book of Proverbs. We've seen uh, the, the harm sexual impurity causes and the healing found in the gospel. We've seen the need to take good advice, to listen to people, to truly be listeners. Um, we've looked at, um, at, at these and, and, and other things, the responsibility to care for the vulnerable, the vulnerable and the marginalized. Uh, various ones of these themes, I'm guessing, have, have hit various ones in, in, in various ways. So some of these things have probably gripped uh, various ones of our hearts. And there's certain weeks where it really, it really hit home for us and the person beside you just didn't really, didn't really hit home for them. And other ones, uh, unlike the, these, these certain weeks that convict you a lot, other weeks it's really your sweet spot. Uh, there's some of us in the room and you heard about protection for the vulnerable. Like that's your, that's your jam. That's your thing. And so you hear about that and you're really tracking with it. Not so much from a conviction standpoint, but just to be inspired to continue doing what you're doing. But it is this week, specifically it is this week that uh, that I am I'm praying will hit home for every single one of us because this is the week we're looking at pride and humility. And while various ones of us have various strengths and weaknesses, I, I do believe that, that uh, the struggle with pride, being a people with, uh, with, uh, with pride, is something that every single human being struggles with. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his uh, famous chapter in Pride and Mere Christianity wrote, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or even unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity, and not only enmity, enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. By this he is saying that, whereas other sins, other things that are, that are contrary to God's way, there is uh, the sense of, um, of, of fellowship in these in these wicked things. Pride is, is unique in the way that it always uh, puts you in opposition to others, in the way that it always makes you an enemy of those around you. It's by nature competitive. It is by nature opposed to those around you, threatened by other success. And that, that in, in that respect, it brings disunity and, and breaking of friendship between people and breaking of friendship between people and God. Uh, now, I'm not here just to, to unpack C.S. Lewis's words, but rather to unpack what the Bible says about this. So, Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. I believe you have the words on the screen, I'm, I'm hoping. But I'll read it again. If they're not on the screen, I'll read it again for you slowly. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. 
Here we are. The next verse we'll look at is Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. This is strong language. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. A one who sows discord among brothers. So in this list of six and then seven things that God hates, the very first is haughty eyes. And it's not meaning like eyes that are hot. It's not saying that like that. You have very attractive eyes. It's not saying that God hates that. It's saying that God hates the eyes of, of those who are arrogant. That he hates arrogance. Uh, this is strong language. And I think sometimes we find ourselves, um, sometimes we find ourselves reading the Bible as if, as if there's two different gods. A God of the Old Testament who, who hates things and pours out wrath on things. And then a kind and loving, nice, tame God of the New Testament. But just to burst that bubble, in First uh, Peter 5.5 5 and James 5.6, so those are two different authors in the New Testament, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So whereas in Proverbs it speaks of God hating pride, and we could think of it as uh, God is hating this, this pride, um, but liking all this other stuff about us, in, in the New Testament it speaks of God opposing the proud. So if we're a proud person, it means that God is opposing us. Now how can this be if we know that for God so loved the world? That he gave his only son. How can it be that, that this God who we know is so loving, that he, that he created each person to know him, that he would actually oppose the very people he created? How can this be? Well, this is because pride by its very nature, as Jesus spoke of, pride by its very nature is, is putting ourselves in enmity with people and with God. And that pride is, in, a, in essence, this uh, desire to kind of tower over people, to be looking down on people, to be looking down on, on all things. And when you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. And so that, the person that is proud is, in a sense, not going to see the, the beautiful sunset above or, um, or, or anything above them, including God himself. The person who is proud is, is threatened by the success, the well-being, by the, by the thriving of someone else. And so God who is perfect, God who is always going to be more powerful, who is always going to be more, more everything good than us, is by very nature a threat to us. And so it puts us in, in opposition to God. And so God in his love for us and his desire for us to be people who are, are people who have more than money, people who have more than friends, people who have more than wealth, people who have him, people who are, have come alive and that they know the living God. And God's desire for us to truly come alive and to know him, be people that aren't bent over like this, but people who are fully, who are upright and able to, to live and to see the, the beauty that he made us for. And, and God's desire for our good, our thriving, he must necessarily be opposed to our pride. For our pride is truly a, a bending us out of shape. In his book, um, The Blessedness of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller talks about how we only notice those parts of our body that are hurting. Um, we don't often stop and think like, oh, what a, what a wonderful small toe I have. But if you're like me and you've ever stubbed your small toe, all of a sudden you realize that every step you take and every moment you're awake depends on that small baby toe of yours. And the same can be true like, uh, if, if you like pull a, a random muscle in your lower back. You didn't even realize that muscle existed, but all of a sudden you, you know that muscle. In fact, all you can think about is that muscle. Um, 
Some, some time ago, after reading this, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, one of my roommates and I were walking home from the church office, and uh, we were just discussing the reality of this. So we thought, you know what, let's just stop as we walk home, and let's start thanking God for all our healthy body parts that you'd never think of. Or just say, God, thank you for my esophagus, that it's swallowing food properly, and it's not hurting right now. We just thought this would be the one moment of our lives where we actually are, are thinking about the body parts that are healthy. And um, it's, you chuckle because it's funny. We don't do that. We don't think about our body parts that are healthy. We think about the body parts that are broken. And so for all the various body parts with its various weaknesses uh, that we have, some of us have lower back issues and other ones of us have really bad eyes and whatever it is, whatever is unhealthy in us, the thing that is most unhealthy, that is always drawing attention to itself, is uh, a part of us that isn't actually physical but is, um, is our ego, our, our perception of ourselves. We can define the ego as, as our, our self-perception, our, our idea of our identity. And that part of our being, of, of who we are, is always drawing attention to itself. Um, I might be much worse at this than, than many of you, but I believe all of you can relate to just this past Tuesday, I was at a worship service. And I, I'm not someone, you'll notice, I'm, if we're on the worship team, I'm drumming, I'm not singing, because I don't have one of those voices others want to listen to. I don't, my voice doesn't help people enter into thinking of God's goodness. It more speaks of the, the fallen nature of man. And so I'm, I'm at this worship service, and I'm singing, and all of a sudden I, I hear that like, I'm hitting the notes. And it was, it was this beautiful worship time. It was, it was just such talented musicians, and they were so God-centered, and those songs were singing were all about the glory of God. And I was, I was in the zone, and I'm worshiping God. I felt so alive. And then I hear my voice, and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. And all of a sudden, my, instantly, my attention goes from being about God to, like, my voice is awesome. And I go from like this puffed up thing to all of a sudden this shame, like, oh, I'm such a proud person. And then I'm like, oh, not only am I proud, but like, man, I'm looking at myself again. Like, how come I'm not? And then I turn to worshiping God. And then, and then I'm, I'm just like, just lost in the worship of God. And, and, and all of a sudden, like, I, I start thinking about like how, how like I'm, like, I just, I kept going back and forth with this. We find that our, 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 our ego is always drawing attention to, to itself, always trying to find worth and value in, in ourselves. And, um, and it's, and it's broken. It's broken. Um, and you'll find, like, if, if throughout the day, like, uh, just, just pay attention. Just take a day. Pay attention to how often you find yourself kind of defending yourself. Um, I, 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 a lot of people, like, I'm not someone that, like, looks for um, offending people. Like, I, I like getting along with everyone. And so I tend to be, like, a nice, polite person. But I'm at the dinner table, and a sibling will say something about me that I just feel is not fair. And, like, right away, I'm just defending myself. Like, that's not true. Blah. Like, I just, when it comes to, when someone is threatening our, the way people see us and our perception of ourselves, I know that you and I, I might be worse than you, but that you and I both struggle with always needing to defend ourselves because we feel like our, our perception of who we are and the, the, our value is, is under threat over and over and over. And so, even as these words are heavy before us today, in Proverbs, speaking of God's hatred, for pride. We actually are going to find as we go through the book of Proverbs on pride and humility that these, these words actually speak to us about how we find our healing and our freedom from our broken ego. Um, so what we see, the first point I want us to, to just pause on today is that pride positions us, positions, I need to learn to speak English, pride positions each one of us as an enemy of God. I'm strong with that, but it's up on the screen. You can see it. Pride positions, positions each one of us as enemies of God. In that the way that it, it, it bends us out of shape as we seek to tower over people, as we seek to, to find this, this, our value in, in, 
and, uh, and being in something awesome and something in this way, it, it turns our attention away from God. And in doing that, it, it puts us in opposition to God. But not only that, uh, as uh, several of the verses Noah read, I'll read again right now. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, this is one of those things a lot of us have learned when we're pretty young. We're told pride goes before the fall. And I think a lot of us treat this truth that Proverbs speaks of as if it's karma. Like, oh, I don't want to be proud because then something bad will happen. You know, like, if I'm a proud person, then, then I'll get what I deserve. And, and so we don't want to be proud as if it's a formula. But it's not a formula. In fact, if we stop and think about the people we know and the people who are most proud, or if you look at the Bible and look at who are proud, the proudful people, you'll see that very often it seems like this truth is not true at all. That very often, like for example, not to name names, but that you'll find someone who is exceedingly, exceedingly in love with themselves, the most proud person that is on the airwaves today. And you find that unlike what these words are saying, that they'll have destruction, instead they're a multi-billionaire, one of the richest men in America. And that when they throw their hat into running for being the Republican nominee, they find themselves pulling at the top. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't seem fair. You look at these words, pride, brings destruction, and then you see a man who is exceedingly arrogant, and he seems, not just seems, he is so successful financially, politically, business-wise, in all these different ways. It's, it's phenomenal. So what do we do with this truth in that? Well, there's actually, um, uh, these words, I think, are telling us not simply that, that the proud will one day meet their judgment, their, their maker one day. We know that's true. But that there's this misery that is found in pride. There's a misery, not glory, that's found in pride. And that is uh, something we saw this past week at Church on Wednesday. We just happened to a very different passage. We're going through different kings of the Bible. But it just so happened this week I was scheduled to speak on pride and humility. And at Church on Wednesday, we were looking at Nebuchadnezzar, and that happens to be on pride and humility. And we see that Nebuchadnezzar was the richest of all kings that had ever lived before him. Um, it was the richest of any of his contemporaries. Not only does the Bible speak of his wealth, but historians also know that Nebuchadnezzar was this ferocious, uh, wealthy, uh, luxurious, um, just king of kings. He, he was known as, as the king of kings, even though that's a title that's supposed to apply to God alone. And, and Daniel chapter 4 opens with him, on the one hand, being so successful. And on the other hand, he's filled with anxiety. He's having these scary dreams, and he's, he's so afraid. And, and as, as you meet various, as you meet people and you actually get to know people who have so much success, you'll often find that they're actually people who, uh, who don't have any enjoyment in their success. I, know. I don't often quote from her. In fact, I never before this week quote from her but to illuminate the scriptures. But as someone who actually has a lot of insight on this issue is a woman who's been so successful as a musician, as a pop star. She has so much more money uh, than any of us in this room have, probably more money than all of us combined. Um, she has a lot more friends and popularity and just all the various things that you and I tend to find ourselves pursuing to find happiness. She's got them in spades. And her name is Madonna, and she wrote this in Vogue magazine, which I read quoted by someone else. I didn't actually read Vogue, just, just saying. She says this, My drive in life comes from a fear of being, being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. And I guess it never will. Madonna's words should devastate our pursuit of, of, of 
of the American dream, of pursuing whatever it is that you and I pursue to find a sense of value and worth, whether that's money or whether that's material stuff, whether that's popularity and friends, or even some of us have forsaken all of that and instead we're pursuing this, this seemingly humble life of service. We may even find ourselves living among the poor and, 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 and maybe even being hippies and, and fighting the system and raging against the machine and all that stuff. We're not pursuing the American dream, but we're, what we're, instead we're pursuing is, is a sense of worth found in our doing wonderful Mother Teresa-like stuff. And what Madonna is saying, it doesn't matter how much you pursue, whatever you choose to pursue, as you, as you achieve that thing, you find that this thing you thought would give you significance is failing that. There's a poverty, there's a destruction that is, is greater than not having any food. And that is having a lot of food and yet finding it doesn't fill you. There's an there's a emptiness that is greater than having no friends. And that is being surrounded by tons of friends and feeling so very alone. King Nebuchadnezzar found that, the king of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4, that he has everything a man or woman could ever dream of and so much more than he can ever have. And yet even in the midst of it, he's so afraid he's going to lose it. There's no enjoyment in it. C.S. Lewis speaks to how pride does this to us. He, he writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. He writes about how pride is, is, is the most perverted of, of all sins and, and it robs us more than anything else. And that uh, We looked a few weeks ago about how, how sexual impurity, how lust will lead us to do things that are harming ourselves and others in such horrific ways. And yet C.S. Lewis talks about how as perverted as sexual impurity is, that, uh, that lust brings a man to sleep with a woman or a woman to sleep with a man because he desires her, albeit in a selfish way. But pride leads someone to sleep with someone else in an impure way simply to prove that they can. That the, the proud person uh, is not actually desiring the things they're pursuing. They're desiring a sense of significance from it. And so it actually robs them, empties them. It, 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 it takes from them the ability for them to enjoy those very things, even those sinful things. In a sense, pride robs people of even being able to enjoy sin. That's, it's a very, very destructive thing. And if it robs us of the ability to enjoy sin, how much more it robs us of the ability to enjoy what we're really made for. Pride is a horrible, horrible thing. And in that respect, even though you may see billionaires who are very arrogant, you'll find that their destruction, they're already living in their destruction. So often, the proud are actually miserable. And that not only applies to the billionaires, but it also applies to you and me as we continue to search for significance. So we see that not only does God, um, not only does pride put us in a position of being an enemy of God, we, we read it in that about how God hates pride. But we see that pride harms each one of us. It causes destruction. It causes misery, misery and disgrace. That's the second point, if we can pull it up. Pride harms each one of us. We read about how pride brings destruction. It harms us. It is, it is the opposite of what we're made for, and it robs us of our ability to enjoy life. Now, the Scriptures illuminates part of why this is. Um, it says in Proverbs 29, verse 25, if we can bring that up on the screen, Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This, the fear of man is a snare, is speaking to the very nature of what pride is. See, pride is, is, this, is this search for, 
for a verdict of who we are. Every single one of us is born with this. Um, again, we have this ego, this, this perception of self, and we're looking for a verdict. Who, are, who am I? And what is my value? And the fear of man is saying that. It's not that simply that we're afraid that every man is actually the boogeyman. No, the fear of man means that we're looking for a verdict of, of our value. Our ego is calling out to us for, for its sense of identity from, from the value that others give us, from the verdict, the judgment of others. Now, today, if you, if you speak with a lot of popular counselors and all that, or even just your average guy on the street, they'll tell you, don't care what others think of you. All that matters is what you think of you. Uh, I was uh, at camp a few weeks ago, and I was about to, I was going to be leading for all the kids uh, a, a fitness exercise, like dance class thing. I'm not a dancer, but I was going to lead it. And so we were trying to figure out whether or not the clothes that they were thinking of me wearing for this was uh, like clothes from uh, workout videos of the 1980s or girls' clothes. Like it, it's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the 80s, but uh, there's some overlap right there. So we're trying to discern, is this cross-dressing or is this funny? You know, and I mean, you can have, because cross-dressing, the Bible actually speaks against, but funny from the 80s would be okay. So we're trying to figure this out, uh, kind of looking at the Bible, trying to see what it says about this. And this guy, this Christian, he's one of the leaders of this camp, just blurts out um, to me, like, judge not lest you be judged. He was saying, like, who are you? Like, don't judge, don't don't try to make a judgment about this. Just do whatever do whatever feels right to you. Go for it, thinking that that's what the Bible calls us to. In a sense, he's doing what a lot of people do today, which is, okay, don't fear man, uh, just fear yourself. Just find your verdict, your value, your sense of ego uh, from yourself. That's that's what determines uh, your your verdict of who you are. Um, but these words about fearing man, of them being a trap, is a trap for us. Whether it's that we're fearing the opinion of others, we're looking to others for value or we're looking to ourselves for value. Either way, it's a trap. And it's a trap because there's such promise in that. If, if you've ever tasted praise from people, if you've ever received praise from someone, others are from a sense from yourself, it, can, it, it feels so good for a moment. And so we continue to pursue that, pursue people thinking highly of us, or pursuing ourselves thinking highly of us. But what we find, what Madonna found to be true, is that it's a trap, that, that it never satisfies, that it's never enough. And we have this, this relentless a never-ending pursuit of significance, pursuit of, of a verdict, a good verdict, that never lasts. It never, ever lasts. So if pride and, and looking to others for the verdict of ourselves is a trap, how do we become free of it? Um, Benjamin Franklin, uh, in his effort to become humble, found this. Th- these are his words. There is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. And I think that you and I can relate to that, that we sometimes find ourselves living and, and thinking in a humble way, and, and instantly we're like, yes, I am the humble man. Like, I am, this is awesome. And then you find that you're proud again. Another way that we deal with it is not simply being proud of our humility, and, and that's perverted, but is that we so often, especially in the church, we try to become humble people by thinking uh, really, really bad stuff about ourselves. We often want to just dwell and think about our wretchedness, thinking that this will make our humility possible. But what we find is that that ego that is always drawing attention to itself, and, and that, in a sense, longs to be puffed up, that the reverse of that, that a very much deflated ego, a, a very low view of yourself, is actually still uh, this uh, self-obsession. And so we find that whether we are those who think that we're awesome super, super awesome, or with those who think that we're super, super trash, that either way it's this, this broken ego that's always drawing attention to itself. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, in, in a pursuit of trying to become a humble person as a teenager, I used to always be saying like under my breath about myself, and I thought this was good spirituality. I thought this was walking with God. Like, I'm a wretch. I'm a wretch. I used to always be saying that something would happen. I'm like, I'm a wretch. I'm broke. I'm a wretch. And I'd always be saying these things, and it seemed, and some of the things I was saying are, some of it is, is bordering on biblical, but it was always about me. I was not uh, someone who's, who was a worshiper of God. I was someone who was self-obsessed of my wretchedness. And it was, uh, it was still my ego calling attention to itself. So how do we become free of this? Well, Proverbs 11.2 says, what we already read, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor of life. We see that humility is, in a sense, synonymous with wisdom. And we see that humility is synonymous with the fear of the Lord. Why is that? Because each of us is searching for this verdict. And so many of us, our, our ego is broken and it's always relentlessly trying to find that verdict for ourselves. To illustrate what it means to be fearing God. Uh, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, is an amazing example of someone who is truly a humble person. In 1 Corinthians 4.3 he says, and he, he's, he's rebuking the Corinthians for being a, a, a competing with each other for, uh, their, for their verdict of, of, of their significance. And he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So he's saying, I don't, I don't actually look for my verdict and value from any one of you, from any one of you, and I, nor am I trying to like, uh, find the verdict from what, what I think of myself. No, it doesn't matter. Instead, he says, but I, I'm not thereby acquitted by the fact that he doesn't judge himself. He says, no, it is the Lord who judges me. He's saying, I'm, I'm looking for my verdict of who I am from God. Now, that might sound really freeing at first, but if you think about it, uh, God knows each one of us and the depravity of ourselves so much more than any one of us. Um, the, God knows the wickedness of our hearts even more than you and I can ever imagine. And so when he turns his attention to a verdict from God, that might sound good at first, but then you think, oh no, God actually knows. Like, God, when, when everyone else is fooled by my politeness and, and when I seem like I'm caring for people, but I'm actually doing it for the desire of, of praise, God sees that. So in a sense, God being our judge should actually fill us with more fear and more insecurity, in a sense, than, than if it was us fearing man. Except that Paul knows reality. And he knows that the good news isn't just an idea. It's the reality that, that Jesus has actually, that Jesus has actually achieved the perfect verdict. That he lived the perfect life. And that Jesus made the verdict that he receives. God said over Jesus, this is my son whom I love and who I am well pleased. And by Jesus dying on the cross, we all know the story, we, we celebrate every Easter and every communion service that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus did that in order that we might receive that verdict from that Jesus deserves. That the, the verdict over Jesus, that God says, this is my son with who I am well pleased. That you and I can actually receive that verdict, that, that value of who we are, is, is the value that Jesus has. That we receive that as we uh, turn from our own self-obsession and turn from our own sin way, and, and, and we look to God as we pray to him for forgiveness and look to him for life and trust in him, we receive what Jesus has made possible. And, and as, Paul, as Paul does it, that's becoming a Christian. Paul has become a follower of Jesus and receives Jesus' verdict. He no longer has this broken ego that's always calling attention to itself. And Second Timothy is Paul's final letter before he dies. And I know that when he's chained to a wall in that letter, and it's incredible how that letter, which is uh, where Paul is, has so much to be, in a sense, unthankful for, he's going through such hard times. Instead, the, the letter bursts with, with Paul's love for the Lord and his, his concern for Timothy's well-being. 
How do you be someone that when you're going through your worst day ever, you're actually concerned about someone else? You're not just there to just pour out all your lament. It's because Paul's ego was healed. Paul had a, had a, had a healed self, a healed understanding of who he was, that it wasn't bent out of shape, always trying to call attention to itself. Instead, because he had become a, someone who was actually humble, whose, whose view was on God, whose life was on God, whose attention was on him, his fear was of him, he was able to therefore be someone genuinely interested in other people. Um, C.S. Lewis writes in that, in that famous chapter on pride and, and humility how if you ever meet a truly humble person, you probably didn't realize they were a humble person. He writes how it's not, the, it's not the person who is always speaking of their wretchedness that is a humble person, but that person, again, is actually quite self-obsessed with their wretchedness. Rather, you'd, you wouldn't notice it because the humble person would be someone who's actually genuinely interested in you. He's genuinely interested in other people. Lewis writes that a humble person is not someone who thinks less of themselves, it's someone who thinks of themselves less. That a humble person isn't someone who thinks less of themselves. It's someone who thinks of themselves less. That as our ego becomes healed, as we receive the, a verdict from what God thinks of us, we become people who are actually able to turn our attention away from ourselves. We're actually able to find freedom. And, and as our attention turns away from always trying to get that verdict from other people, we're actually, in, in, you're able to, to when we thank God for a meal, we're actually uh, there saying, I'm not trying to have this meal so to have uh, more, more of a meal than someone else. I'm actually able to enjoy my meal. That, that you have friends, not for the sake of having more friends than others, but you're having friends because, not to find value in your friends, but you found your value in God, and therefore you're free to actually enjoy the friendships you have. And in that respect, the person who might have much less than the rich is living a life of so much more joy and meaning and even enjoyment and, and pleasure than the person who is so very proudful. And so just to finally, a few takeaways of, of how we can become these people who, who instead of uh, fearing what others think or fearing what we think of ourselves or living a life that is thinking of ourselves less, how do we become free of that cycle that Benjamin Franklin spoke of, of as we try to become more humble, we just get more pride about our humility or, or be free of just trying to be obsessed with our wretchedness? How do we become truly humble people? Well, as so many other issues, we, we need God's help. And so this is a prayer. I want to invite you to, to pray, um, even if you use other words, to consistently pray this in your life. Dear God, grow in me a humble, trusting confidence in your saving work in my life through the gospel. That we'd be consistent, people who consistently pray. Dear God, grow in me a humble, trusting confidence in your saving work in my life through the gospel. The, the next thing that, to pray, uh, another, another, way, another way to pray this would be to pray a prayer like this. Dear God, grow in me a fear of you, an awe of you, and a love for you that captivates my heart, holds my attention, and transforms the way I see everything. In preparation for the sermons this week, I went onto Twitter and I just typed in the, the hashtag Grand Canyon. I wanted to see what do people tweet when they go to the Grand Canyon. And I saw that, uh, although if you look up almost anything else, you'll see selfies of someone in front of whatever monument, a famous monument or, or place. When you, look at, um, and you look at tweets of the Grand Canyon, what you see is the Grand Canyon, and you end up reading these tweets about, I never felt so alive, uh, freedom, um, uh, all this kind of stuff about freedom and being alive and being awake and, and about the beauty of the Grand Canyon. You don't see much selfies, almost none. Why is that? It's because no one goes to the Grand Canyon, this majestic thing in nature, to glory themselves. When they go to, to feel so small and so alive as they, as they turn their attention finally from themselves for a moment to the majesty of the Grand Canyon. 
I, uh, I'm trying to become healthy, so I was at the, I've been trying to go to the gym, and I was at the gym the other day. There's a guy whose muscles were, I think, 18.6 times bigger than my own. Like, he was huge. And I noticed that, like, every time he passed any mirror in the gym, like, he just kind of stopped. He just, like, he caught his own eye, and he just looked. And he just, like, looked so lovingly at himself. And I just picture, like, what would this guy look like if he went to the Grand Canyon? Like, would he actually be standing at the Grand Canyon just, like, looking at his biceps? Like, his biceps might be big, but compared to the Grand Canyon, they're very small. And it's something so freeing, so freeing. People chop the Grand Canyon as if it's, like, a, uh, like um, quite often, because it's something where they finally get a piece, a moment of what it feels like to turn your attention from yourself. The Grand Canyon, is, as awesome as it is, can hold your attention, perhaps, for an afternoon or maybe if you camp there for a week. But there's only one thing in all of the universe that can hold our attention for all of eternity and for all of our lives. And that is God, the one who breathed the universe into existence. This freedom we find as we look to God. And so that's why we pray, dear God, grow in me a fear of you and awe of you and a love for you that captivates my heart. That helps you, you, you turn my heart and my attention away from my muscles or my voice or my, oh, how caring I am or all those kind of things. Lord, turn my attention from that. Would you hold my attention? And transform the way I see everything. So those are the two different prayers to pray. Just that God would grow in us humility. And the third thing is that we'd be worshipers of God. Uh, one of the best ways to combat pride in our lives is just as we worship God. That's the final point. Just worship God. That's why some, some of why we sing songs is that it's turning our attention from ourselves. And turning our attention to the bigness of God. I mentioned King Nebuchadnezzar before. And how he was the richest of kings living in such fear. Eventually, in God's mercy, God drives him into the wilderness and makes him like an animal for seven long years. And, and Nebuchadnezzar's healing and restoration of sanity is found as he, uh, as he turns, after seven years, turns his eyes toward heaven and worships God. And as he worships God, his self-obsession, his arrogance is taken away and he becomes someone who's fully alive. And the joy that jumps out of the page of, of Nebuchadnezzar's prayer is a, and worship is a beautiful thing. We become alive as we turn our attention away from ourselves and turn our attention to God. And so the final point that we have is that humility restores our sanity, our friendships, our joy, and our life. That humility restores our sanity, our friendships, our joy, and our life. This is contrary to the input I received as a, as a young boy. This is something to pray for. This is something to ask God for and to, and to look to God for, that he would make us a humble people. So let us, let us look to him right now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I, I would venture a guess that every single one of us in this room knows what it's like to try to be humble and to find that even in our pursuit of humility, we're so proud. God, it seems that we lack the ability as human beings to be really, truly humble apart from you. And God, we don't want to be apart from you. Lord, we want to be so close to you. And so, Father, I ask that you would help each one of us in this room to overcome this, this sin that every man and woman knows, the sin of pride. That you would bring us freedom from trying to find a verdict in, in the value and opinion others give us or that ourselves give us. That instead, we would look to you. That like Nebuchadnezzar, you would heal us, God, from our, from our self-obsession. That you would restore to us the joy and the meaning and the purpose and the lives that we were made for, that each one of us would truly be lovers and worshipers of you. God, that you would grow in us a humble, trusting confidence in the finished work of Jesus and the verdict we receive from you through him and that you would captivate our hearts, that you would hold our attention and that you would transform the way we see everything 
that we might be people fully alive in you for your glory and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.